Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Good afternoon. We are at yet another clinic. This one is called Five Steps to Better Metrics, How One Marketer Leveraged Web Analytics for an Annual Revenue Increase of $500,000. Really, the subtitle is accurate, but the more important point here is that we're going to learn how to glean insights from our metrics that will inform our entire testing process. We're going to try to understand the customer theory, how to frame a proper research question. We're going to learn how to glean more insights, gain more wisdom from the numbers. Uh, you can hashtag about today's web clinic at uh, this uh, address, hashtag web clinic, uh, there on Twitter. You can also uh, hear from John Powell, uh, Senior Manager of Research and Strategy, managing some of the largest research projects we have going on around the world. John will be joining me to help answer your questions. John's had a, and I think developed a particular expertise at thinking about the test results, interpreting those results, and determining what should be tested next. And that's why we've selected him to help us with this particular project. I'd like to start out by showing you a graphic, a chart from one of our most recent research projects. We are doing about 1,200 studies this year. And you'll notice this one. We asked marketers around the country, in fact, really around the world, uh, are your metrics... uh, Uh, working for you? Are they set up properly? Uh, In fact, we asked, are the metrics your organization does not monitor? Are these metrics there or not being monitored because uh, they haven't been set up properly? Notice the results. 62% of those who responded said that there were essential metrics, important metrics, they could not monitor because they didn't have confidence in the setup. That all sort of connects with a case study. And I have a study that I think you'll find particularly fascinating. It's Test Protocol 1427. It's about a group that is in the event management business. They have software that helps users create online registration forms. The goal was to increase the number of completed leads on the home page. Here's the research question. We're going to talk, by the way, about research questions. Almost no company I speak to knows how to properly frame a research question. But the goal was to answer this question, which page will generate the greatest number of leads? And uh, as we thought about that, I want to take you to the control, the home page. Marketers, if you have not seen this before, I invite you to take the Q&A feature in your, uh, I guess it's uh, GoToMeeting or whatever the software is we're using. Yes, GoToWebinar. And please tell us some of the changes you might make to improve the performance of this page. Just write them in. I'm watching. Uh, Ross screams. I say scream because headline is in all caps and he's got three or four apostrophes or, I'm sorry, exclamation points afterwards. Someone else. Color the headline, someone says. The headline has no benefit, says Philip. Jeremy says less friction on the form, less clutter. The image, the layout, it's too busy. The headline does not give me the reason to read further, someone says. Too busy, too busy, too busy, someone says. The page is too cluttered, someone says. Very interesting. Don't ask in the headline. Tell them why the company is the best choice. And the call to action is not strong enough, I'm hearing. I'm looking at uh, 
uh, feedback from Lisa, from Monique, from Richard, from Thomas. There's literally hundreds of these coming in. Simplify, too busy again, needs a more prominent benefit statement, some of you say. I want to share with you how we were thinking. We looked at this in the same way that you are. We applied our heuristics and uh, we developed a treatment to try and correct some of the weaknesses that we saw inherent in the control or the original home page. We, we changed the headline. Interesting that you pointed that out. You were right. We changed the headline and we focused more on the product. We emphasize features and benefits. We, uh, we emphasized free access. We ensured that the value was being communicated in all of the subsequent steps. So take a look. You'll see the control. You'll see the treatment. I hope you agree that the treatment looks uh, better than the control. Let's look at the results. The, uh, the experts here in the labs managed to grow the business by 24.5% in the negative, meaning conversion rate went from 2.3% to 1.7%. Now listen, sometimes we're testing in order to simply gain a learning and we don't even anticipate or expect that the conversion rate will go up. We think it might go down, but when it does, we will eliminate a possibility in our hypothesis or even a possible hypothesis. I wish I could say that was what happened this time. The truth is our analysts our researchers, our scientists were surprised. In fact, they were perplexed. I remember this, how it unfolded. We had to understand what was wrong with this approach. So what could we do? Well, when you look at this, uh, we realized that there was something missing in our understanding, something fundamental. The problem is this is a business. It has to grow. They uh, had just recently or about to go public. They needed to hit their numbers. We couldn't afford to experiment too much with a page as critical as this. And so John Powell, uh, who is in the studio and was overseeing this, coming up here, John. And I don't even think John planned to be up here during this segment, but John, come alongside of me. Explain to me, if you'll just look right there, John, you'll notice sort of what we've talked about. We wanted to use the SCO page as a research window into the cognitive psychology. Tell me what you were thinking as the analyst at this time. By the way, before John speaks, I remember him coming to me saying, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was concerned. He was very concerned. Get going, John. So the reason why we went to the SEO landing page as a research window is mostly because it was an isolated ground where we could do uh, simultaneous testing and it mitigated the risks. So the traffic uh, was in such a, it was given to us in such a way or uh, it allowed us to go in and test specific things without impacting the greater amount and, and able to isolate certain variables and motivations of the traffic. So we can dive in deeper, understand something that could be transferable to other channels such as the homepage. I think transferable is the operative word in that statement. And John, just stand by me because what I want you to see is the next test protocol. Remember at uh, Mech Labs we have the world's largest library of case studies and experiments and you're seeing another protocol. But this protocol, test protocol 3055, is drawn from this new test on the landing page. And it's really insightful what happened. So same company. This uh, goal is to increase the amount of leads generated online. This is a different part of the site. I will take you to the control. Here it is. And, uh, and John, just explain this original page to us. So it, it, is, it is indeed a landing page, you know, but it still kind of contains the same strategy as the home page and the main site uh, 
navigation. So if you take a look here, I mean, uh, we've, we've got, you know, the typical introduction, we've got body copy, and then the same exact form. All right, so we knew that we could test here without the same negative consequences because the traffic sample size was smaller. Right. I want you to see what happens next. Now we create a new approach. Uh, on the first test, we focused on how this product made the process of creating registration forms easier and could cut the prospect's time in half. Uh, John, you want to comment on that? Uh, it, yeah, it, and, what, and this is an actual test in a sequence of tests, and that's something that's really important to know. This was one, one test out of a sequence of three in which we combined certain common denominators to understand the effect of those things. So one of those things was taking the process of, of actually signing up for this uh, <clears throat> uh, free access in steps. And then there, another aspect of it was the actual value proposition and the clarity, or just bringing more clarity to that element of it in of itself and all the different elements that represented that. So you're looking uh, at the different, like the headline, you look at the body copy, the way we display it, uh, things like that. So we took those two common denominators and combined them together and then tested them separately in following tests. Now, now follow with me, because in a moment I'm going to show you the results, but I want to get one thing crystal clear. Let me just summarize what I've been saying so far. And if you say you're spending a lot of time in this study, it's because there's a real important insight that will drive what we're going to learn throughout the day. And we're going to have a very, very uh, tight presentation with five critical steps. We're going to spend every moment trying to help you glean a deeper understanding of how to design your test and glean more from the metrics. Back to this study. In the first experiment, John, we focused on what sort of hypothesis? The one where we essentially lost 24% of the conversion rate. What was the main thing we were changing there? Uh, essentially, we were talking about the value proposition. We were also looking up. It was it's actually the process more or less focused. We were focusing on a, uh, I think it was a product level process, and it, and we also combined that with this other uh, common denominator that we were working with, and it just okay. it, it, it fell short. All right, so now look at the control for this second test. Look at the treatment for the second test, and of course the critical question here is which one of these generated the most leads? Here's what we discovered. This new test in this other area with a similar offering produced a 548% increase. Now, that's dramatic, and in its own right, it was a win. But I want to point out why it's not as exciting as it might sound. It's not as exciting as it might sound, because while that was a 548% increase, it wasn't on the home page where all the traffic was coming right, from. Where all the volume. Yeah, we could brag about the increase, but it didn't hit the P&L with the sort of profound impact that we'd like to see. However... It taught us something essential about the customer. It helped us establish a sort of why and what perimeter that helped us define a new way uh, that the customer might be thinking. And that principle was transferable, and so we did something different. We took the learning from the SEO page test. We translated it to the original home page. You'll recognize that treatment there in the middle. And uh, we created a new homepage test that produced a 90% increase in leads captured. Any right. other thoughts on that, John? It is really about thought sequence and controlling the thought sequence um, because that was the primary thing that we did truly differently with the actual SEO landing pages. We did subsequent tests to verify that before we did this uh, homepage test to understand it. We took that learning, made it transferable, and then adjusted the thought sequence of the new homepage test, and then after that 90%,
we took the process level optimization, applied it, and then that's where we saw the additional gain because we got the first part right, which was the thought sequence and helping the customer really understand the value proposition. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. All right, now, I just want to point this out to those of you that perhaps haven't been on a lot of these clinics. And when John uses phrases like thought sequence and process level value proposition, you may not be clear. To us, it's normal language. Let me make a simple comment and then move on from here. We don't believe in optimizing web pages. We believe in optimizing the thought sequence. In the first test, the one that produced uh, a 24% negative lift, we approached it differently. We didn't understand the thought sequence. We used the new test to get clear about the order of thoughts, the series of micro-yeses necessary in the mind of a prospect. And we applied that new learning to the new page, and of course we saw a dramatic increase. How does that connect with you? Well, it results in three principles. The first one is this, the goal of all customer research. This is very important. We can get lost in mounds of data. We can get lost in warehouses of information. But the goal of all customer research is to enable the marketer to predict customer behavior. And that's all. In fact, customer research that doesn't enable you to predict behavior has very little value, if any at all. It leads to a second insight. The primary utility of metrics is not in answering how many, but in answering why so. I'm not just interested in how many people visited, how many people bounced, how many people converted. I need to understand something more profound. We need to understand something deeper. Why? Later we're going to show you how, the, how that why question leads to a what question that will inform you, uh, well, can help you truly understand your customer in a deep and more profound way. Brings me to the third insight. Ultimately, the metrics enable a marketer to see the cognitive trail left by the visitor's mind. Now, if you can see that trail, you can see how they were thinking, where they came from, what happened as it unfolded in their thought process, because essentially there is a mental dialogue, and that dialogue is linear, and the customer is traveling sort of on a journey from the channel through your site. And you don't want to look at the page. You need to look into the mind of the customer to understand that cognitive trail. And that's where metrics become so very, very important. So it leads to this uh, slide that I have in front of me and this typical problem. We are overwhelmed in the digital age with the amount of data that we're collecting. It's not always accurate. We don't always trust it. But even if it was all accurate, it's so much. So how do we cut through all of this and make sense of these metrics so that we can glean rich customer insights, the kind of insights that enable us to predict their behavior and thus improve our conversion rates and the results of our offers. That's driving everything we're going to talk about today. And it's rooted in this, this simple heuristic that most of you, even long time uh, you might say uh, readers or people in our audience from uh, Mech Labs and Marketing Experiments and Marketing Sherpa may not have seen. This heuristic is part of a patent filed in 2008 that guides our testing process. We teach it in our course, The Fundamentals of Online Testing. You'll notice the letter M is circled. That's because today we're going to take some of the key insights from that course and teach them to you and help you understand how to use metrics to peer deeper into the mind of the customer. And uh, let's walk through a five-step process with the first one being this. Step one is establish visibility. This is visibility into the mind of the customer. 
And to do that, we have to get a sort of philosophical understanding of our metrics because really there are so many ways, so many things we can measure that I could fill up slide after slide with the uh, sort of bullet points listing the metric that's available in most of our analytics programs. Instead, I'd like to break all metrics into four categories. Sort of what's unique about Mech Labs is the fact that we have blended philosophy and science and practice. And I need to get philosophical with you so that we can get to the science and then push it into your practice. Really, metrics come down to four key components. The amount, the source, the nature, and the results. You can measure how much. You can look for you know, where they came from or where that action was grounded. You can look at the nature of the action and you can measure the actual result. If you think of it that way, you can start to get simplicity. And for everyone on this call and logged into this event, I want to help you gain a greater sense of confidence in your ability to derive value and insights from your metrics. It's overwhelming. Most of us are insecure about our ability to use the metrics program. We either don't trust it or we don't really understand it because it's, it reminds me sort of before Steve Jobs came along and gave us an iPod, these music players developed by other organizations were overwhelming. They could do so many things. There were so many options. It was hard to work them. And Steve kept saying, simplicity, 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 simplicity. And he brought a simplicity to the way we stored and played our music. I'm certainly uh, not Steve Jobs, nor am I trying to be, nor am I wanting to stretch that metaphor very far. just want to point out we need simplicity. And these four categories help us get there, and let's interpret them just a bit deeper. So the amount is about how many instances of a particular action. The source is where are these prospects coming from. The nature is what are prospects experiencing. And the result is, what are they doing? If you start to bake your metrics into these four categories, these four buckets of knowing, you can move to the next step and use it to capitalize on that information and drive closer to the insights you need. So uh, let's look at the second step. So often we overlook the profundity that comes with getting clear about our objectives. Step two is determine your objective. Determine the exact research question you're trying to answer. And so let's talk about research questions because I have taught all, all over the world these courses and I've asked PhDs in statistics to tell me the research question and instead they give me a hypothesis question or they give me a secondary question. But most of us don't understand how to frame a proper research question in the digital environment. And so let's look at uh, what that entails. Whether you're running a live test or conducting a forensic metrics analysis, your research and metrics analysis must be grounded in a properly framed question. And a properly framed research question begins with the word which. Now hold on, I'm talking about research when you're doing an experiment, a behavioral experiment that involves a split. Single factorial, multifactorial, you know, the common language you often hear is uh, multivariant or A-B testing. In any one of those cases, the real research question that should drive all that you do is a question of which. Now, we teach this in great depth, of course, in our, in our course, but you can learn enough today to be useful. And so let's talk about that just a bit more. You don't simply ask, what is the best price for product X? But that, that, that question drives the proper framing of a research question, like which of these three 
price point is best for product X. And then you conduct the behavioral experiment. Its value is that instead of getting people to tell you what they think about themselves, which is often distorted and often what happens in a focus group, you're actually watching them. You're peering deep into their actions and discovering who they are, discovering how they think from what they do, not from what they say. And that's really the only way to test price points effectively. One of the worst ways to use a focus group is to try and figure out price points. Hypotheticals. Uh, posed to people sitting around a table will not give you the same sort of insights you can get from delving deep into the behavior of your subjects. So, how would you refine, I want you to think about that in just a moment, the following research questions. Get ready. I need your Q&A. I want you to use this. I want you to answer this. If I were teaching at, at uh, Cambridge or somewhere, you would, uh, you would uh, get involved now in the tutorial and I would ask you, what is the best headline for my landing page? How would you rephrase that? I'm watching your answers as they come in. I know it takes just a moment to type that. Okay? Someone just said, which of these headlines is the best for my landing page? That is a correct answer. Which headline will perform best? That is also a correct answer. I like this one especially. Which of these three headlines is the best for my landing page? You're starting to get the understanding. And of course, if you're using one of our documents, which by the way, you can get at no cost called a test protocol. It's patented, but we'll let you download the tool and use it. It will help you frame your entire behavioral experiment. And the first thing it's going to ask you to do is get this research question right. Now, this research question, this which question is is often arrived at from a hypothesis question, a hypothesis about why the customer is behaving in a certain way, but it always leads to which. Here's another one. Why do I have such a high bounce rate on my offer page? That's a question that perplexes many of us. And it will lead you to postulate. Now, if you're a marketer, the word postulate might be frightening, but candidly, every great marketer postulates probably every single day. Uh, what we're really doing is trying to understand why a customer is behaving in a certain way and the best we can do is bridge the gap between what we know for sure and what we don't know with a hypothesis. And so we postulate maybe it's because of X. Now, the same person as they ask that question in a group probably hears another possibility from someone across the table. Well, maybe it's because of Y. Now we're suddenly beginning to develop a series of hypotheses and testing in the online world is so primitive, so immature, and so inaccurate that often we don't know how to take that speculation, convert it into a true research question, get to an answer, grow our insights about the customer, and develop a sustainable competitive advantage. So, let's ask you, here we go, which, let me see what you've written. Which of these offer pages has the lowest bounce rate? There's a question. Which of these three offer pages gives me the lowest bounce rate? Margaret, you did very good. Which elements on my offer page is causing the highest bounce rate? I like that, Jeremy. That's drilling down into a cluster. Here's another one. Uh, which of these factors is causing a high bounce rate on my offer page? Uh, those are good questions. And, uh, and I see Howard. Howard, you said, is my high bounce rate because of A or B? That is almost the research question. But for various reasons, rather than imply which, you might want to actually state that and you might be able to restate that to get a more compelling, more useful research question as the project unfolds. Now, I'm going to skip through the rest of these and show you a funnel. This is a funnel 
uh, that we looked at for a major organization. And I can simply tell you this. It's a travel group. We analyzed this funnel, compared it to our benchmarks, and we noticed that it was leaking. Actually, it was leaking $320 million a year. By the way, you can plug that leak using the methodology that we're talking about. Uh, metrics give you a window into the gaps of your customer theory. Ultimately, I don't want a customer theory. In a perfect world, I wouldn't need a customer theory. I just would know exactly what the customer was thinking. And that might happen if I'm selling a car and the man I'm selling the car to, we'll call him my customer, tells me exactly what he's thinking and why he doesn't want to pay that much. I might not have to guess. Suddenly, I know that he doesn't want to pay more than $10,000 and I can make the decision, will I sell the car for $10,000 or not? The problem is, when you're selling to many people at the same time, particularly online and not face-to-face, -face, it's very difficult to peer into the mind. And you've got to look at their behavior to understand, to get predictable. And so, here's what we do. We, uh, we look at this funnel and we're trying to discern in it where the revenue opportunities are. Let me give you an example. Here's an exact example. Tesh Protocol 1305. Here's a website that sells retail and wholesale collector's items. The goal is to increase the conversion rate. Look at the metrics carefully. You'll have to think about this. When we analyze the metrics, this is right in the cart, we realized that there were leaks throughout the process. The credit card submission page, however, stood out as a low-cost opportunity for immediate returns. What do we mean by a low-cost opportunity? Well, what we're trying to do here is figure out how to get the most for the lease. We want to invest the least amount of energy. That might be time. That might be money. It certainly has to do with, with the allocated resources necessary to making a change on a new page for a treatment and then conducting a test. The goal here is to sort of identify the nexus between where we can do or invest the least amount that has the highest potential gain. And so we come to the next step. We analyze the metrics even further, and we saw that this step also had the highest lost revenue per cart. We were losing more money here than anywhere else. Now, from this, here's two critical words. They're on the screen. Look at them carefully. We hypothesize. Marketers, you hypothesize every day, but the problem is you don't do it intentionally enough. We don't do it intentionally enough as a, as, a, as, a, as a community. When you start to hypothesize, if you'll recognize, wait a second, I'm doing some science right now. I'm, I'm actually trying to peer into the mind of my customer, and I'm doing more than a guess. I'm doing more than speculation. I'm creating a theory as to why the customer is behaving in a certain way, and I want to test that theory. That's what we did. And so we began to think about how we could fix this, what was going on in the mind of the customer. And you'll notice, if you look at the screen, that uh, we realized right away that it, uh, it might be because it's unclear why the credit card is required when the payment method is different. It might also be the complexity of the purchase agreement terms. And uh, it might be for the third reason you see on the screen regarding no indication that the, uh, the credit card information is secure. Now we have a choice, very important choice, something that I can't teach in depth right now, but that is, should we test these variables independently or altogether in what we call a radical redesign or a variable cluster? I can't tell you how to determine which path to take in this simple time. We teach this in the, in the course, but I want you to know that we did a variable cluster, we ran a test, we addressed the issues in the way that you see behind me, and because of our time, I won't dwell too long on it except to get to the result. And the result is a 5% increase in total conversion. Now, this is vital because you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but that's only 5%.
Look at the fine print. What does it say in the what you need to understand? Uh, here's the key. While it seems like that was a small increase, choosing this specific step in the sales funnel resulted in a $500,000 a year increase. Remember something. It is not the size of the gain. It's the ROI impact. Sometimes 4% late in your process will produce a much higher lift for you than 500% early in your process. And that's why you've got to think through your testing process. We teach the development of something called the design of experiments. In a proper design of experiments, you're thinking through the implications, the potential ROI of each test, and you're comparing that potential yield against the potential cost to achieve the yield, then you're choosing that test series which will likely re produce the highest yield for the least amount of energy. Most of us test in a chaotic way. We should be working from a design of experiments and you can do that. You don't need a PhD. You need to understand the basics of testing. And today, even at the end of this, I'm going to take you to another much more detailed uh, link. You can get to that link. It has, there's no cost associated with it. It's just another one of these lectures where you can learn a lot more about validity and proper test design. Let me keep going. The third step is track and measure. Now, let's stop for a second. You can see from this list, establish visibility, determine objectives, track and measure. The actual names of the steps aren't all that profound. In fact, they appear to be just the rational process associated with designing a good test. The profundity is not in the name of the steps. It's in their particular application. What we need to do is understand about tracking and measuring. And to really do that properly, you need to know the difference between primary and secondary metrics. Now, when I say that phrase, if you can't immediately define those and understand how to use those, then what we're going to see in the next four or five minutes is very important to you. Now, uh, let me just move to the, an example of primary metrics and secondary metrics. Uh, let's go from this diagram to a deeper understanding. Primary metrics are the essential metrics that answer the research question. Let me give an example. If you're testing the conversion rate of headline A, against headline B, then your primary metric will be the conversion rate, and that will help you determine, particularly that's the only variable you changed, which headline will perform better. However, there are important secondary metrics that you can use to get deeper interpretation, because what you're after here is more than a lift. The goal of every test should be to get a customer learning, not just a process lift. You're after a deeper understanding of the customer so you can predict their behavior all over the business in multiple areas, a way that will help you get where you need to be in the long term. Let me give you an example. Here's a research question. Which headline will generate the most subscriptions? Here is a primary metrics, the visits and subscriptions and the subscription rate. Here's a research question. Which paid search ad will generate the most qualified traffic? Here's the metrics, the ad spend conversions and the cost per acquisition. I could give you a third example. It's on the screen. I will not read it. The point is these are essential metrics. You need those metrics to figure out the answer to the research question. However, the next slide is more interesting. Here's a secondary metric and the insight gleaned by it. Time on the page. This helps answer a more profound question. Are visitors engaged with the content? Are they confused with the process? Click tracking. What are visitors interested in? Are they confused with the process? Bounce rate. 
Is there a lack of relevance to the visitor? Are there too many distractions? Is there too much or too little information? Segment level data. What motivates individual visitor types? Where are the deeper optimization opportunities? Form event tracking. That tells you what form fields cause anxiety or confusion. How much friction will your visitor put up with? In each of these cases, traffic patterns, for instance, tell me more, yield additional insights. And the goal here is to use the primary metric to answer the primary research question, which begins with that key letter or that key word, which. But you want to go deeper. You want to learn more. Again, let's move from a conceptual teaching to a case study. Let's look at it in action. This will help clarify precisely what I mean. This is Test Protocol 1341. Here's a company offering dedicated hosting services. They want to increase the number of leads. We're going to start with a research question. Everybody on the, on the, in the audience, would you please look at that research question? How does it begin? Which page design? You may not have noticed this before, but you should see every research question on every clinic we present will begin with that same word. Which page design will generate the greater number of leads? But listen, that's not in itself anything more than a clue. I can't wait to teach to you the last step, step five, because step five will teach you how to derive much deeper insight about the customer by connecting the word which to the word why to the word what. But that's coming. For now, let's just look at the page. There's the control. There's the treatment. Now, let's look at both the primary and the secondary metrics utilized for this test. Here's a research question. Which page design will generate the greatest number of leads? Look at metrics. Primary metrics, here they are. And you can actually see them. Look, visits to the control, 31,000. Visits to the treatment, 30,000. Leads from the control, 628. Leads from the treatment, 1,764. How would you like to be that marketing director? These are good leads. I know the story. I know how much they made. I know exactly the dollars made in this test. This was a UK company, and they were very specific about measuring ROI. Look at the conversion rate increase. The conversion rate on the control is 2%. The conversion rate on the treatment is 5.7%. We have three primary metrics, and they're full of, of uh, intriguing results. However, uh, in the end, we can conclude that the treatment, that is this page on the right, generated 188% more leads. Congratulations, by the way, to the marketing director from that organization who had the courage to run this kind of text and work with us. But I'm not done. Bear with me, because there's something sort of, I think, actually more interesting than the result. Let's look at this page. Here is uh, a sort of close-up. And when you first look at this page, see the red box that's around uh, those drop-downs? Well, when you click on those, they expand. There were six expandable sections of copying featuring different elements of the product value proposition. You can see a couple of examples there. You see the, the, the first one is 24-7 technical and customer support, and the second one is most trusted hosting company. But what we did was monitor the specific clicks from visitors on this page, and we were better able to understand which one of these six elements which one of these aspects of the product's value proposition was most or were most appealing to the visitor? So what you've done is something more important. You Imagine yourself, you're the marketing director. You don't just walk in to the office of the 
uh, let's say the CEO and say, look, we just got a 188% increase. We went from X leads to Y leads. This is going to have a profound impact on our P&L. We think the lead quality is basically consistent, and so we need to be certain that sales is able to handle this increased volume. Wouldn't any one of you in marketing like to be in that position? But here's the key. You're learning something else. The, the marketing person in your organization, you, the marketer, you're the philosopher of the organization. You should be the expert on the customer. In fact, the action of sales should be grounded in the, in the contemplation of the marketer. The marketer brings a sort of deep understanding of the customer. And what you've done is do is something more than just achieve a 188% gain. You're starting to learn what buttons to push in the customer's mind to get a response. And with that secondary metric, you can say to yourself, you know, I think we could design a test where we emphasize benefit A. Let's suppose that of those six expandable sections, it's the third one that gets the most drop-down. Now you can postulate. See? <laughs> Marketer, postulate. Now you can build a theory around that and test it in the next treatment. Secondary metrics are essential. Now, I want to say this to everybody on the line. That doesn't mean that you need to understand all the metrics. It really means that you need to know the key metrics that help define the answer to the research question. And then you need to focus on a few secondary metrics that deepen your understanding of the customer's thought process. Let's continue. I want to take you to step four. I want to show you how to monitor anomalies and determine if there's a validity threat. But can I stop for just a moment? Can you, by the way, Daniel, who says, I love peering into the all caps mind of the customers, many, many exclamation points. You know something? Uh, that's not just humorous, Daniel. It helps you get up in the morning and go to work in a stressful environment where you're constantly being asked to outperform your last victory, where you're being you know, thrust into situations surrounded by people who probably don't even understand the process or the difficulties in your day. Marketing is a tough job. But it becomes fascinating when you see it as a window into the mind of people. It makes you a student of human nature. And the greats, names you probably don't know, like Claude Hopkins and Rosser Reeves and some of the old school masters from 50 and 70 and 100 years ago. These guys were students of human nature, and they found it fascinating. And it kept the whole process of marketing intriguing and interesting. It really is a philosophical pursuit. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, what I want to do before I go any further, however, is ask you to give me some feedback. Is this helping you? Uh, are you liking what you're learning? Is the pace right? Help me optimize, because I have two more points, and I'm sort of judging how I tackle them based on your response and I'm in the studio, and I have these huge monitors. I don't know how big they are. They're huge, and one of them uh, is, is all your feedback. I'm reading it constantly coming in while I'm teaching, so I can course correct as I go. Good, good. I'm, I'm seeing uh, very positive feedback, so I'm going to keep going like we're doing, and I'm going to drill down on anomalies. As I do so, I want you to notice that anomalies in the data set are an indicator that you may have a threat to your validity. Now, we take two sessions in our course on this and teach all about uh, validity threats. But I want to show you something right now. Look at the question. What's wrong with this test data? I want you to look at it. Marketers, if you haven't been certified, gone through our training, I'd like to get, well, actually anybody can answer it, but 
In fact, if you have, you should answer it. I want to see if you get it right. But if, you, if, you, if you're a student who's taken the course in online testing, then make a note of that. I'm looking at your results. What's wrong with this chart? If you're the marketer, you go on your metrics program, you're running a test, you're looking at the treatment and the control. The blue line is the control. The red line is the treatment. You can see the two. If you are experienced, you should see something that immediately captures your attention. What is it? Hmm, issues with insufficient traffic, someone says. A weekend effect, as someone say. Needs more days. Only one person has got it right so far, and it's Alex. And Alex, I'll say your last name since you got it right. Alex Bach. Uh, let me watch. I appreciate what Christine says. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I think that's true of most marketers. In fact, one of our recent uh, research, uh, one of our benchmarks, we asked marketers how many are actually running tests and calculating basic validity. That's just confidence intervals and so on, statistical relevance. Do you know that 40% aren't even doing the basics of validity? And that doesn't include the other sort of effects, which I'm going to talk to you about later, that I think 90% of those involved in testing don't even know and can't even list for me the four biggest threats to their validity. Uh-oh, somebody else got it right. Casey Bell, you said it. And Neil Isco just said it. All right? Let me tell you what it is. Look right there at uh, day eight. And day nine, the line is crossing. When that line crosses, it's an indication that something might be wrong. We actually ran this test at our optimization summit a year ago. Not the one we just did in Denver, but the year before. And we were seeing a clear difference. And then suddenly, the lines crossed. Well, it caught our attention. And we were in, I think, Atlanta. This one was in Denver. Uh, that summit, however, was in Atlanta. I remember that we quickly... Uh, had our team get back in touch with the scientists in our lab in Florida, and they began to do a deep dive, trying to understand if there was some sort of effect here that was going on. It certainly wasn't sample size, but it was an instrumentation or actually a historic effect. What happened was we were running this test live while we were teaching, and the audience, very interested in the test, were getting updates on it. They helped build the treatments for the test. The entire audience that came for this, there was a sold-out summit, helped build the treatment. We ran the test live. We started teaching. Everybody was excited. Over two days, we were monitoring the test. But the problem was an email went out, and people from the audience began clicking in the email, and they skewed the result. What's the bottom line? We had invalid, inconclusive results because of uh, a historic effect, if you understand validity. I don't need you to know about historic effect. I need you to watch for that cross line. I need you to understand that that is a potential anomaly that you need to monitor. Here's another example. Look at this uh, spike. Those spikes uh, can be a grave concern. You'll see those vertical deep blue lines. They almost cover the spikes. But one is a low spike. The first one is low and the second one is high. If you see real severe spikes... It may be an indication that you've got a data integrity issue. Perhaps uh, in one test we were running uh, a, a test regarding a service or a database access to learn of any sexual predators living in your area based on uh, federal records. The long and the short of it is we saw a huge spike and when we went down to try and understand what happened, we discovered that Dateline ran a uh, one-hour television special used the word sexual predator and so many people went online searching under that term that it spiked our traffic, skewed our results, and hurt our test. Those are things 
that we would never have even known to look had we not been monitoring for anomalies. I want to stop. I've got one more point. I've got a few minutes to teach it, and I'm going to answer a lot of questions. A lot of you are asking questions. I want to make sure that, Paul, you're queuing up many questions for me. Some of them, uh, go ahead and put on slides or whatever you need, and we'll get to those. But the fifth point's my favorite. Before I teach it, I just want to say something to you. Point four, right now, may make you feel um, particularly inadequate. You may say, well, I mean, I understand, but I don't even know what the anomalies are. I, I only have 60 minutes. I'm not trying to bait you or push you into courses. In fact, there is no upsell to uh, one of our courses. I, we do have a, a training week coming up in Baltimore. We'll give you a slide that talks about that. But this isn't uh, me trying to sell the fundamentals of online testing. In fact, we're not even teaching that course in the training week. This is me trying to give you a firm overview. Much of this is applicable right now. If you need to know more, I'm going to take you to an entire lecture on validity at the end with a link, and it's free, where you can learn more. Let's go on to the next point. Uh, Before we do, well, here's the link. And notice these three other effects. History effect, instrumentation effect, and selection effect. Now, I will say this. You should, if you're interested... Read and go to that clinic. It's live. I'm teaching. You can click on the link or you can, you know, type it in and go there. Um, it's a re- replay of one of these clinics where I talk in at length about these sort of effects that can hurt your validity. You should also get in that course when you can. It'll help you master more. But I, I have no offer page or link for it that I know of here. So let me keep going. I come now to the fifth. Interpreting data. This is where we really fall down. We get a lift or not. If we get a lift, we're excited. But we, don't want to, we really don't know what to do after that except to go announce our result. And we really don't know how that feeds into the next test. We might have a suspicion that we should try this or try that. But I'd like to give you a method, a way to think about the data that you yield from your test. Let's begin with uh, this chart. I mentioned this at the beginning. Which, why, what? What are we saying here? Well, proper research has a theory that is reduced to a which question. Which headline? which page, which call to action, whatever it is we're testing. Now, once the result comes in, the thoughtful marketer doesn't simply rush away and report that they had a lift of 33%. They ask a more profound question. But why? Why did more people choose headline B over headline A? Now, that always leads to a what question. And this is the most important of all. The which question is offered only to get to the what question. The which question, as a research question, doesn't yield very much in terms of customer learning, but it yields a way to learn. But to to take advantage of that way, you have to ask what. What does this tell me about my customer? Let me give an example before I actually cash in some below here. You might have a headline that emphasizes how fast and easy it is to use the product. You might have that, let's call it headline A. You might have headline B that talks about uh, how, uh, let's say, this product has won more awards and is thus more reliable, you're sort of implying that, uh, than any other product in its class. You might have a C, a third headline, that talks about how low the cost is compared to others. Now, you don't know which of these is the prime lever you can pull on to get the most people to say yes. And remember, that's all we do here as marketers. We aggregate yeses. We get enough micro yeses, we achieve a macro yes, that's the sale. I'm in the business of getting people to say yes. Now, because I want to do this with integrity, 
we're in the business of getting the right people to say yes. A value proposition is only valuable to the person for whom the value was, was developed or derived. So, the proper question is, in developing a value proposition, if I'm the ideal customer, why would I purchase from you rather than any of your competitors? But if I am the ideal customer, is the qualifier. So, let's suppose I have a group of customers. They're coming to three pages, three headlines. One emphasizes ease of use. The other emphasizes reliability. And the third emphasizes low cost. We run the test. The low cost headline, let's call it C wins. I don't just rush out and declare my results and be excited. I say, but why did that win? And in this case, because the headlines are so carefully parsed, it's pretty easy. It tells me something about my customer. What does this tell me about my customer? That my customers are more interested in the price than they are how long we've been in business or how many awards we've won or how easy it is to use the product. So I'm going to have to think about how that impacts all of my other marketing efforts to that customer segment. If that's helpful, let me cash it in with a little bit more depth. Which headline will generate a higher response? Why this headline? What does this tell me about my customer? Uh, here's another one. Which testimonial will generate the most response? Why this testimonial? What makes my customer especially anxious? Let's assume that the testimonial is designed to get you to relieve uh, you know, anxiety or friction, etc. Taking a look at this testimonial in particular will yield a result and thus an insight about the customer. See the little <laughs> blue man? We call that man Austin. Uh, let me go back uh, and show you in case you didn't see him. We're filling him in right now. Uh, he, uh, the more we learn, the more we fill him in. I can't imagine the genius at Mech Labs who invented that animation, but, but the Austin animation is getting uh, deeper, darker. That means we're learning more. Let's keep going. What's that? Ostomer. Ostomer. Yeah, we call him Ostomer, by the way, around here. It's become an inside joke. Which call to action will generate a higher response? Why this call to action? What is my customer's position in the sequence of microuses? You say, wait a second, what does that third thing mean? Well, it means that if we had a call to action that said, buy now, and our other test, and on the test we tried that against a button that said, learn more, and uh, the learn more one, we might deduce from that that the customer's not ready to purchase yet. We haven't given them enough information. And so we might go back and rework our landing page in order to give them more information, make it easier for them to say yes. This is that whole process in action. We're coming up on your questions. I'm going to give you a uh, really rich illustration of what I mean. By the way, Ostomer is now completely blue. We have no customer gap. We know everything about the customer. <laughs> and uh, we can predict their behavior perfectly. Uh, all right, so let me take you to one real example. The brand has been blurred. That's why you see some blur. But I remember this test. We were trying to improve the value proposition. We needed to re-articulate their value proposition. We thought about it. We studied the data sets. We postulated what we might need to emphasize in order to get the customer to trust that this was the best solution. And then we ran the test, and the test produced a 201% increase. I mean, uh, I remember they were thrilled. And in their mind, the work was done. But it wasn't done because this was just one aspect of their site. And we needed to transfer that learning throughout their site, which means we needed to get the message on their existing dynamically generated templates. 
The goal was to move the message without losing the game. Anything positive would be a win. In this case, we interpreted, we went on, we moved to the new template, and we gained 2%. We did not go backwards. This is a big win. Same message, new template, but the gain is holding. They were even more excited. Now, what we decided was, well, we need to actually redesign the template itself because we think we can optimize the template and, and appeal more, in a more rich way to the customer's motivations. Same message, but let's optimize the template itself. See if we can get any gains from that. We did. And the gain was 29%. You can see that. Uh, at this point, I remember the research partner. They were thrilled. They were excited. This is what they were hoping for. However, we weren't done. Because something happened. In a screenplay, it's called Story Click. When we got this final, at this juncture in the testing process, remember the little ostomer diagram? Sort of the color came in. The rich blue filled up our understanding and we really reduced the customer gap. We learned how to message to that customer. What's your point? Here's my point. Look at the next slide. It's fairly shocking. Gains. Gains everywhere throughout the business. Huge impact. I remember the CEO got involved, Fortune 500 company. The CFO got involved. Everybody trying to understand why that division suddenly was prospering at such a remarkable level. The P&L was impacted significantly by this more profound understanding of the customer that came from interpreting the data. And that's really the point of everything I'm teaching today. I'm going to shift your questions, but what I want to do is help you as a marketer to get interested again in the essence of marketing. No, you don't have to love the numbers. Instead, what you have to do is love what the numbers tell you. You might say, I'm a creative person. I'm not that interested in the numbers. Good. Then use the numbers to spark your creativity, to stimulate greater hypotheses. Use the numbers to make you excited about getting up again and coming to work in the morning because they're going to teach you who your customer is, how your customer thinks, and help you improve your results. So, uh, I want to go to some of these questions. And, um, and by the way, Daniel, and I know you don't mean it derogatory, he says, that looks comical, the size of these conversion lifts. It does, but it's genuine. Those are all validated. Those are all in test protocols, and that's really what happened. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, let me take you to the questions. And while I'm doing so, uh, they have placed in my deck training week. I'm going to be in Baltimore July 30th through August 1st, right outside of Washington, teaching. I'm going to teach, and my staff is going to teach for three days. This is not a summit. All it is is training. We teach value proposition development. The theory of value proposition and how to apply it to your business on day one. It's a certification program. Same thing on day two, teaching all day long. You have two options, B2B or email strategies. And on day three, the landing page optimization course or an analytics course. All of those courses, a lot of people are sending their groups to, you know, to attend for three days and basically get a key certifications, interact with our team and learn. And so I'll leave that on the screen in case you're interested, but I want to go to your questions. There we go. So, John, do you have some questions for me? Is that I, what you have in your hand? I do have a couple questions. All right, come on up. John's going to help me answer questions. So, and yeah, I've, and just to keep that on the screen, we can just use, we, I've written some of them down. One of them comes from Ann. It's, uh, she asks, how can I track and integrate social media metrics into my web? <laughs> and I don't know if I can answer that very I, well in a short, short yeah. clinic. But I, I think the, the truth is that uh, in 
analytics, we have a more profound problem with regards to social media, and that's how do we ROI our social media efforts. I think we need to go back and simplify what we demand of social media. Its real value comes not so much from how we influence our customer, but how our customer should be influencing us. Social media is sort of a way to see, to think, to listen uh, to the customer and understand. So I would develop a set of metrics that are closely connected to what I'm learning. I'd also develop a set of metrics that are closely connected to, you might say, measuring the impact of a particular move, negative or positive. I know that I can't answer that question right yet, but I promise you that we will answer it uh, in perhaps an upcoming clinic when we get onto social media. It probably involves Zusha and our social media team. And for those of you that don't know much about what we do here, we have the largest deposit of of uh, social media benchmark studies research uh, and still we have more questions than answers. Let me take you to the uh, next question. Go ahead. So um, is Google Analytics good enough to measure everything I need, asks Lou. Lou, I, I don't know, but I can tell you this. We use it with a lot of big companies to measure everything we need to know. Uh, right. It has some limitations, uh, but in most cases you can learn a lot from Google Analytics. You can, and with a little massage you can learn a lot more. So yes, yes, yes. You just have to determine how much you want to learn and how much additional you want to do and also implementation time because some other systems may be able to give you that extra little bit without the developer uptime. So just something to keep in mind. Absolutely. Good point. Here's another question. What is the best method for calculating incremental click costs for low-volume keywords? And, you know, I... I, um, Actually, uh, Paul uh, flagged this question up for me just a couple minutes ago and I have a hard time exactly understanding what you're looking for, but I think what you're looking for is you're trying to understand just what are your low-volume keywords are actually, how much do they cost? One thing that we do is we aggregate um, all of the keywords on a certain click threshold. So it might be all the keywords that produce five or less clicks, and then we'll actually look at the cost per acquisition of that group, and then we'll do different thresholds to compare them, and then we'll see when the drop-off or the shot-up really occurs. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... Um, if you're looking to understand what, how uh, low-volume keywords are impacting your business, that's generally a good place to start because it's hard enough to just do the calculation for one at a time if you've got a ton of them. And, Don, Don if you didn't uh, get an answer to that question, I want to serve you. Same goes for any of the three questions or four that we just answered. Uh, email us. We'll try to answer it. We might even put the answer on our blog so that we can help as many people as possible. Um, I'm going to have to move... Uh, on because we're almost out of time. The one thing I want to say to you is we're trying so hard here to discover what works communicated to you. We so value the feedback of the community. Come to Marketing Experiments. It's free. All that research, about $15, $20 million of the research is on there at no charge to you. You can read it, listen to these lectures, learn from it, and interact with our blog. If you found today helpful, will you tell a colleague? That's all we ask. We want to grow this community so that we can keep discovering together what truly works. Thank you. We'll be back again in about two weeks with more of our latest findings. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments live web clinic. You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics as well as receive access to $10 million worth of Internet marketing research at marketing.